Good morning, Westridge. Happy Memorial Day. Yes, it's a holiday. Yes, I'm here. Oh, tomorrow's a holiday. Okay. Well, you know that uh, it's really Google's world. We just live in it. Some late research results from them. Two years ago, Google released a database of 5.2 million books published between, watch this, 1500 and 2008. You can type a search word into the database and you can find out how frequently different words were used in different eras. Okay, Some of you are doing it right now on your smartphones, aren't you? Put them down. A study by researchers between 1960 and 2008 found that individualistic words and phrases increased over communal words and phrases. With me so far? Okay. That's what I've come to expect in this audience. I'm up here for my own self-amusement. It's Memorial Day. What am I I supposed to do here? Over those 48 years, 1960 to 2008, words and phrases like personalized, self, standout, unique, I come first, and I can do it myself were used more frequently. Communal words like community, collective, tribe, share, united, band together, common good, diminished. Talking about a Google word search here. The researcher identified 50 words associated with moral virtue and found that 74% were used less frequently as the century progressed. Certain types of virtues were especially hard hit. Usage of words like courage, bravery, fortitude, they fell by 66%. Usage of gratitude words like thankfulness, appreciation, dropped 49%. Use of humility words like modesty, humbleness, you guess it, dropped 52%. Usage of compassion words like kindness, helpfulness, guess, dropped 56%. Another university did a study and found further evidence on the subject of individualization. They found the word preferences was barely used until 1930. But usage since then has surged. They found a long decline of usage in terms like faith, wisdom, ought, evil, prudence. When's the last time you used the word prudence, for example? Yesterday. Okay. And a sharp rise in what you might call social science terms like subjectivity, normative, psychology, information. Now... If these studies have any credence, and I think they do, then over the the past half century, society has become more individualistic. And as it has become more individualistic, it has also become less morally aware because social and moral fabrics are inextricably linked. Now, you're asking yourself right now, 
It's Memorial Day weekend, and I just got a technology lecture about a Google search. Why are we doing this? Here's why. The communities in which we live are markedly different from the one we read about in the book of Acts, our series right now. The reasons that that faith community that we read about in the book of Acts went viral was not because they were skilled orators or debaters. It wasn't their finely tuned and convincing theological arguments that could answer every question you might ever have about God. It wasn't because they constructed beautiful buildings. It wasn't because they were the most intellectual or the most educated. They weren't the wealthiest in the land, although there's nothing wrong with any of those things. Christianity went viral because of the miracle of the communion of the saints. The way in which they treated each other was unlike anything anybody had ever seen up until that point. That's Acts chapter 2. And as we'll see today in Acts chapter 4, it was because of the persecution of the saints. Now, I don't know about you, but the first reason, the communion of the saints, I'm all in. I'm all about that. Love that stuff. Loving, caring, generous community. Yeah, I'm there. Present. But the persecution part? Uh, Can I skip that part? Quick review. Peter had healed a man crippled from birth. And then chapter 4 reveals that in the midst of this exciting, hopeful scene... There was evil lurking in the background. There were authorities doing the devil's waltz. And suddenly there was a display of authoritative, iron-fisted power as the temple guards elbowed their way through the crowd, surrounded Peter and John, arrested them, dragged them off to jail. A trinity of corruption confronted Peter and John. The, The Bible says, rulers, elders, teachers of the law. Think of the most fraudulent group, and that won't be hard for those of us living in Illinois. Think of the most fraudulent group of attorneys, politicians, and religious phonies you can. And you've got an idea of this group. And despite what you may hear from some quarters of American Christianity, sorry to say this to you today if it's news. Persecution is a part of the Christian life. Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 17, or verse 12, in fact, everyone who wants to, to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The question is not if, it's when. This chapter, chapter 4 of the book of Acts, which is where our series brings us today, reveals some important examples from the communion of the saints and, as we'll see today, the persecution of the saints. Example number one, the purpose for the persecuted. I've selected just a few verses to give you a flavor of what's going on. You read the whole chapter yourself today, sometime this week. When they, meaning the authorities... 
saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. And then the authority speaking again. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in His name. But Peter and John replies, Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Turns out persecution has a purpose. It crystallizes boldness. It deepens determination. It creates clarity. It provides an opportunity to answer questions. It gives us the opportunity to display courage. So i got to ask you some questions in this message. Is that the way persecution works for you? Now, your persecution may not be threat of imprisonment. It may be a boss or a spouse or an ex-spouse or a neighbor or a business partner. And it may involve an unjust lawsuit, betrayal, potential loss of your job, physical verbal abuse. Maybe it's just being ostracized or ridiculed. And when that happens, you have a choice, just like Peter and John. How are we going to respond? The way our individualistic culture encourages us to respond? Or the way God's way tells us to respond? When you respond with grace and forgiveness and humility, when you had every right to retaliate and seek revenge, if you respond God's way, people will want to know the same question the authorities wanted to know in Acts chapter 4. They will want to know, by what power or name did you do this? Now here's my application question for you from this section of the text. What's different in your life that causes other people to ask, how do you do it? How do you manage life that way? The powerful and wealthy accusers, they had a problem. How could these uneducated laymen, with no professional qualifications, how could they have such poise and confidence? How could they have such wisdom and coherent speech? And their conclusion became a remarkable compliment. The only way we can explain this is they've been with Jesus. Courage gives way to loyalty. When ordered not to speak anymore about Jesus, they knew in advance how they'd respond. They didn't have to think about it. They'd already made their mind up about this issue. We do well to do the same, to settle the issue before the threat gets issued. Pressure comes into our life when we become people pleasers, when we cave to peer pressure. Insecurity can make life a popularity contest in which we must win approval at all costs, and the cost is always exorbitant. (laughs) C.S. Lewis once said of a man, as only C.S. Lewis could, Mark liked to be liked. There was a good deal of spaniel in him. 
And there may be a good deal of anxious spaniel in us all. All the more reason for us to memorize the apostles' response. Judge for yourself. We can't help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Example number two. The prayer of the persecuted. Some of the text goes like this. Now, Lord, consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand. Heal. Perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now, look at what Peter and John don't do after this unjust encounter. They didn't form a protest march. They didn't picket the religious leaders' offices. They didn't file a brief in court. They didn't get out of town to mope or wallow in pity. What did they do? They went back to the communion of the saints. And when they got there, what did they do? They prayed. But wait. Look what they prayed for. (laughs) You know, if it were me, I know what I'd be praying for. God, get even. I want some lightning bolts coming down from heaven like a drone strike on those guys. That's what I want. Vindicate me. Save me. Watch how they ended their prayer. Their lives had just been threatened. And now they pray for more boldness. Do you understand what they're praying for in this context? That's tantamount to saying... God, my life is threatened. The authorities are coming down on me. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. That's what they're praying. We're in trouble. Our lives are in danger. The authorities, the ones in power, they're threatened. Do it again. Give us more boldness. Get us back out there. Now, I've got to tell you, that forces me to evaluate most of my prayers. How many of my prayers have been cowardly, escapist, self-centered, my preferences? I come first. I can do it myself. Most of them. How about working in a few prayers for boldness, courage, miracles? You know, those words we don't use anymore. Historical footnote. Less than 40 years after this prayer meeting that Acts chapter 4 records for us, Roman armies surround the city of Jerusalem and the authorities that threatened the apostles were dispersed. For 2,000 years. And what about the growth of this new faith community led by these unschooled fishermen? If you were living in the first century and you were looking at this situation, you'd put your money on the authorities. 
The authorities were out of power for 2,000 years. This new faith community penetrated, permeated all strata of Roman society, changing it forever. Despite the fact that from AD 64 to AD 313, the church experienced 129 years of persecution. And the distribution of the years of persecution shows that all generations experienced the drama of martyrdom. The total number of martyrs, the word, by the way, just means witness, is calculated to be 100,000. And some estimated to be twice that. Example number three. The possessions of the persecuted. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, we've already seen financial generosity in chapter 2. Here it is again. Here it is again, because even in the midst of signs and wonders, money doesn't fall from heaven. And the idea that no one claimed any of their possessions was their own was not new. This faith community would have read Deuteronomy chapter 8 that says, You may say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. The what's mine is mine spirit that died at the cross. Here's where generosity begins. The recognition that I own nothing. It's all a gift from God. My job my job is to be a good manager of what I've been given. Now what's different in chapter, from chapter 2, here in chapter 4, is that the church is now being persecuted. It's one thing to be generous when everything's going great. It's new, it's exciting, it's growing. Easy to give to that. Now in chapter 4, it's a context of uncertainty and harassment. Can I be generous in that environment? Because I want to know what the stock market's going to do. I want to know what the employment picture looks like. I want to know where real estate prices are going. And out of this community of thousands by now, one is mentioned by name. One name emerges and remains in church history as the supreme example of sacrifice and generosity. The name was Joseph from Cyprus, though that's not the name you would recognize him by. He sold a piece of property... He brought the proceeds and he gave it to the apostles. Sometimes we're called to extraordinary generosity. Joseph's generosity was so encouraging, so timely for this persecuted community that the apostles changed his name to fit his spirit. You're no longer Joseph, you're Barnabas, son of encouragement, son of consolation. Son of exhortation. Now the changing of a name to match a person's character is not an infrequent practice in the Bible. Abram becomes Abraham. Jacob becomes Israel. Simon Bar-Jonah becomes Peter the Rock. Now, time out. Here's the danger of going through a Bible book like we are because sometimes we have to deal with subjects that we would not otherwise want to deal with because the text suggests the subject. So I'm going to warn you right now, hold on to your seat. 
Because what comes next, some of you won't like. In fact, you may want to persecute me after this. So I have a fast car, engine running, right out here in the loading zone, the minute I step off the stage. Especially those of you consumed in this individualistic age in which we live. So, you've been warned? There's a slip in your program that's a, uh, that's a release to say, I have been warned. To absolve me of any lawsuits. Okay, here we go. Here's what gets overlooked in our 21st century communities. Encouragement in the early church was defined as extraordinary generosity and doing it publicly. Hold on, it gets worse. Pat on the back, just not the same thing. Giving privately, of course, that's your decision. Or giving it all, that's, that's your decision. No coercion going on here, no guilt, shame, manipulation going on here or in Acts chapter 4. But when there's an urgent need or a big project, it's almost always more encouraging to others when someone steps up for all the right reasons and publicly says, I'm in. I've got some skin in the game. I know what you're thinking. That's why I did. That's why I did that. Whenever I do that, that's an indication I'm reading your mind. No, no. I'm working a holiday weekend. What do you What do you want me to do here? I know what you're thinking. There's that verse. Don't let the right hand know what the right left hand is doing. Right? That means you never talk about money. Doesn't apply. That's not what that's talking about. You go back and reread it. That's talking about benevolent giving. You don't help out a poor person and advertise it because it would embarrass the poor person. Numerous examples of giving publicly in the Bible. I don't have time to get into that right now. But I can tell you, having worked in the world of philanthropy for 20 years, I've seen this principle over and over again. An early adopter, a lead gift, encourages other people to give. Generosity begats generosity. And the extent to which the church today has forgotten this principle is seen in the fact that the average American gives less than 2% of their income to philanthropic causes and has been pretty much unchanged since the pilgrims fell off the boat. I did have one more in me, I'm sorry. What about the person whose public giving is motivated by selfish reasons? What about that person that wants to brag about what they're doing so they can impress other people? You can do a lot of things with the wrong motivation. You can sing with the wrong motivation. You can speak with the wrong motivation. You can serve with the wrong motivation. They can all be done with the wrong motivation, but that can't stop us from doing them. How many of you would honestly say you're ready to persecute me right now? Okay, good. So, you're, you're going to lie instead of telling the truth. Here's the way it works in the 21st century. Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, two of the world's wealthiest men, they publicly said, we're going to give the majority of our money away. But they didn't end right there. In 2010, they started the Giving Pledge, challenging other billionaires to give their fortunes away. They thought it was a moral issue. 
I mean, you, you can't possibly spend billions of dollars on your life, in your lifetime. You, you can't physically do that. You can try, but you couldn't do that. I just said you couldn't do that. And so today there are 114 individuals or families who have taken that pledge. You can go to givingpledge.org and you can read the names of the people who have publicly pledged to give away the majority of their wealth, billions of dollars, because of these two men's example going to philanthropic causes. More to the point, we wouldn't be sitting right here today without the generosity of about a dozen families, and I mean about a dozen families, years ago, who were extraordinarily generous to allow this church to move from the community college to this facility today. It's going to get worse. I got one more shot in me, and here it is. All of which leads me to ask you, This final question. If people knew about your generosity, what would they say you're a son of? In tough times, generous leaders emerge. Now, it may be tempting for you to listen to this series and say, that's nice, that kind of explosive growth was 2,000 years ago and it was in a primitive culture. And it would be a mistake to believe that tempting thought. Today, you cannot enter the world's largest country, China, as a missionary or a Christian worker of any kind. Years of communism has attempted to control, suppress, limit the Christian church. Officially, there are only state-run churches. Unofficially, there are thousands of house churches. And today, some have argued that China's estimated 80 to 100 million Protestant Christians make it the largest such community in the world. The number of Chinese Christians dwarfs the number of Christians in most other parts of the world. And they're growing at 7% a year. The viral growth of the church in Europe and the U.S. the last 2,000 years is now happening in China and the Southern Hemisphere. Prompting one commentator to say, the Chinese dragon is being tamed by the Christian lamb. Yeah, it's going on today. There's still suppression and persecution in China, but I'm guessing by what's happening there that there are some Chinese Christians somewhere in a room praying. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. 